Hello, my friend. My name is Joe Bakmotsky, and welcome to the Simplified Cancer Podcast. And listen, it's never easy to go through cancer, right? It changes your body. It changes how you feel. I mean, even the way that you see yourself. So how do you make sense of your life after cancer? How do you deal with the changes and the challenges of everyday life? And what do you do about the worry about cancer coming back? Well, these are just some of the questions that we tackle today with Wendy Lichtenthal, a psychologist from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Wendy's specialty is helping people who go through cancer. And I think you really love the conversation that we are having today. Wendy, thanks so much for joining in. I've been really <laughs> looking forward to talk to you about this. And, uh, and with cancer, it's so crazy, right? Because whether it happens to you or whether it happens to your loved one, it's never like fair or just. So how do you, um, how do you even begin to make sense of it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because I think that's, that's what we try to do as human beings, right? We try to make sense of, 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 of things uh, in our lives. And, um, and for many people, it doesn't make sense, right? It just feels like it comes out of the blue. But I think an important thing that we're always thinking about is the lens that someone has as they enter their cancer journey, their cancer experience. So everyone comes to the experience with a different lens. Um, some people, particularly if they had a family history, they might kind of have thought, this, this is my fate. This is something that, that may happen to me. So they already might even have it playing in the back of their mind throughout, throughout childhood, adolescence, and so on, that, that they're at higher risk. And that's that person's lens. Whereas another person might have a belief system where, I'm healthy, nothing, you know, nothing can happen to me. I take care of myself. And so that person might have a very different reaction in terms of how they're trying to fit this in. Um, but I, importantly is the idea that we all come to the experience with a different meaning-making system, if you will. And we want to be kind and compassionate to that lens because we have to acknowledge that how you're facing this and how you're trying to make sense of it is going to first be influenced by that belief system. And so sometimes those, what we, what happens is, you know, you have that, you get a diagnosis and perhaps your belief about the way the world works is something like everything happens for a reason, or God has a plan, um, or, you know, we have control over our lives or things are completely random. I mean, it could be all, any kind of, the, any sort of belief like that. And then this diagnosis happens and you're now trying to fit this event into that belief system. Well, sometimes I think for some people they fit it in and we call that assimilation, like they get it in. And so they say, okay, well, I think everything happens for a reason and I got this diagnosis. So this diagnosis must've happened for a reason. And in that case, they kind of it, it kind of flows. It, it still might be very unsettling. There's a lot of there are a lot of emotional consequences to deal with, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. But in terms of making sense, it fits their belief system. But then for other people, it challenges that belief system. And for other people, it's a it's a situation where they're saying, okay, well, I thought that everything happens for a reason, but I can't possibly think of a reason that this happened. So perhaps uh, in this case. 
um, that that belief system needs to change. Perhaps things are just random and everything doesn't happen for a reason. And in that in-between period where they're trying, we call that accommodation, where you're trying to accommodate this new belief, it's a very uncomfortable space. Cause you're like, well, this is how I used to think about the world. Now cancer came and kicked up my whole way of understanding the way the world works. And I have to reorganize and kind of bring this into my, my narrative. Um, so I think that's one big thing. And then the other thing that happens so often because we are so driven to make sense of things is that when people can't find um, a satisfying explanation out there in the world that they often turn inwards, right? So they often try to look at, well, what did I do that might have led to this? Because we want the world to make sense. We want to know that if this, then that. We want to know that if I open the door, the floor is going to be here, the ceiling is going to be there. We want to know that the world is predictable and, um, and that we can feel safe in that world with that predictability. So I think those are some, some you know, major challenges is that then if someone can't find an explanation out there that's satisfying, we see so often that people start to blame themselves or try to kind of figure out what did I do? And is and also why do we wanna know that? Because is there something I can do now to take control? So that sense-making is not just to um, have a sense of predictability in the world in terms of organizing the past, but it's also wanting to say, well, do I have some power and some influence and some agency over something that feels so very out of control? Um, so it's a process. I think that's another important um, consideration is that there's not a moment, a singular moment that everything makes sense, nor even if you find a comfortable place where it makes sense, what you believe today might not be what you believe three weeks from now. And I think that, you know, kind of encouraging individuals to be patient with themselves and kind of even just observe the shifts between like today I was thinking, maybe there's something I can do. So I was looking at, you know, my lifestyle and, and my hat, you know, my health habits. And then a few weeks later, for a variety of reasons, maybe they're like, mm, that's probably not it. This, this stuff is random. You can't predict it. And so we kind of move between that, that sense making. So it's dynamic. And I think people, um, I think understanding that it's dynamic and being compassionate to that process is so, so important. I think that's so powerful, Wendy, when you say that, because it, 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 to me, it really acknowledges and brings out the fact that even if you are in a dark place and you don't know what's going on and, and you are afraid and, and you're scared, whether that's about the cancer, the, the diagnosis that you have, or whether you are afraid about, you know, cancer coming back, whatever point you may be at, it's knowing that it's, it's just a point in time and things will change and most likely you'll you'll gain a new perspective and you'll find out more facts about what's going on and it will likely get you to a place where you have a greater understanding and have a greater way of dealing potentially with the situation and I guess <laughs> gonna get you uh, get you in the head around it so I want to touch something on what you said earlier which I thought is so vital is you you said that we we need to be we look at compassionate to ourselves and kind to ourselves, which is a really, really, I think, is not something that we think about, right? We often think about, you know, um, kindness towards other people. And I think many people, they kind of want to give and help 
towards others, which is fantastic, but sometimes we kind of forget about ourselves. So how do you, I think if, if you've, if, especially if you've been through cancer, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, maybe you're in a place where, maybe you're in a place where you're not in active treatment um, uh, anymore, maybe you're in a place where you're kind of trying to kind of make sense of life now after cancer, uh, or, or after, after the diagnosis at least, how do you kind of start to feel more kind and, and more compassionate towards yourself so that you can kind of yeah, feel good about life and about how things are again? Yeah, I think the second half of that question is a, is a bigger one. I'm going to hold that and come to the first part, which is um, how, how, do we, how do we learn to be kinder to ourselves? And, and so I think the first thing I, the first reaction I have is really understanding just how natural fear is in the face of cancer, feeling life dis is disrupted, feeling frustrated by that, all of the emotions that someone can have, how very, very natural they are. Um, I think that's the first piece of that kindness is really internalizing and accepting that the kinds of feelings and related thoughts um, that are related to those feelings that, that, that individuals who have experienced cancer have are so common and typical. When I work with someone as I'm a psychologist, so when I work with someone and I meet them, I say, you know, my job is never to remove anxiety. That if someone presented with zero anxiety in the face of something that they were told is a threat, that would strike me as odd. So instead, it's really this, you know, we think of this as an acceptance-based mindset of one of, of course you're thinking that, of course you're feeling that. That makes sense. And so that I think is a key, a key ingredient of that kindness is really accepting that anyone, almost anyone in your position would feel the same way. And so um, that of course language, of course I'm thinking this, of course I'm feeling that, helps people, and I'll say more about this maybe in a moment, how to cope with those feelings because then they do what thoughts and feelings do, which is they kind of bubble up and then they pass. It's when people are thinking, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should get over it. I shouldn't, you know, that it's those shoulds and the efforts to feel differently than we actually do that starts to, uh, that, that I think trips people up a lot more. So to answer the question, I think first is, is a sense of permission giving and backing that up with a real understanding um, that the literature could support, that professionals could support, that anyone who's been through it would, would um, validate that this is really hard. First and foremost, this is really hard. So I think that's key. And then a lot, I think in terms of exercises or ways that people pull themselves to that kinder state is often by hitting on what you just said, which is thinking about what you would tell someone else in the same position, right? So this is kind of a classic move in terms of coping that we often invite individuals who've been through cancer to think about is for everything you're saying and how hard it is, well, what would you tell someone else in the same position? Knowing, you know, assuming you knew everything that they're going through is exactly what you're going through. Everything you have on their plate, on your plate, they have on their plate. Would you be like, you got to get over it? Or, you know, would you be telling them something different than, than offering them kind, you know, offering some kindness and compassion? And I think that's where people can step back from their own emotional state, which again is natural, and at least intellectually reflect on that. 
And then it takes practice. It takes practice being different to our, toward ourselves, thinking differently. Um, it takes opportunities to try out that voice and, um, and gain experience with, with it and seeing that there are benefits to being kind to oneself, right? We need data. We all need data. We need lived experience. The intellect only gets us so far. So we can think intellectually about, you know, yeah, if I guess if some this was happening to someone else, then, you know, I guess I would tell them to like rest, you know, you need to rest sometimes. Stop being so hard on yourself. You're not going to be in the same level of energy that you were pre-treatment. Kind of go easy on yourself. Um, but the, that intellect only goes so far when you're on your back and you're feeling tired and you feel like you're feeling guilty because you feel like you should be doing something else, right? That's when we need to practice that a kindness, see that the world didn't fall apart while you took a nap and collect that data and, and reconfigure. Yeah, exactly. When you say we kind of are like human machines in a way, like as you said, we need data to really make sense of the situation. And I really love that 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 um, uh, what you talked about with this transition and about transitioning from kind of should to of course, of course, that's how the things are. So you become more accepting, right? Because you know, because life is is really never never it's never really the same after cancer, right? So, and and we need to learn to live with those changes. So, and Wendy, what would you say are some of the biggest changes that really people experience after diagnosis and and after going through treatment? Well, I think psychologically, if we're going to start with psychologically, we've started hitting on some of that. So one is, it might be a change in their belief system. I used to think things were okay, things, the world was predictable and safe. And now I'm someone who thinks bad things can happen all of a sudden. Um, so it could be a change in a belief system like that, or even a change in faith, right? So it could be shaking someone's faith when they kind of thought, I thought, if you know, you do good things, then, you know, you know, again, for a religious belief, maybe God takes care of you or something like that. And, and so now I'm, it's shaken my whole faith. I don't know what, what I did to deserve this when, again, that's part of that sense-making. So one change might be these beliefs about the way the world works and certainly beliefs about our own identity, right? So that's this other piece is I thought I was someone I identify as healthy. And so this is shaking my whole sense of who I am because this is, this health threat is, is totally, thrown that upside down, or because of the physical sequelae, which we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure, in terms of the other things that are major changes, I don't feel like myself. So I don't know myself to be, to have this low energy. I'm a high energy person. I don't know this, or I don't know myself to be so anxious. I was a cool cat. I was always someone who like didn't get ruffled, you know, my, my feathers ruffled. And now suddenly I worry, I don't even know this about myself. So these kinds of changes to one's experience, sense of identity, feeling foreign to oneself because they're not someone who used to worry. And now all of a sudden they have such things on their mind. They have the fact that life is finite in the, you know, the kind of the curtain has been pulled and now they're looking at this and that's maybe so new. Um, so that I think, living with um, all the things that come with that, like uncertainty, right? This idea that now you're living with a new uncertainty and these uh, possibilities that one never considered before can be huge changes, especially if someone never thought of such things. Um, 
changes to one's sense of meaning and purpose also get really kicked up um, and they can be connected to the physical changes that, that are so common. So those physical changes, of course, sometimes are the one's physical appearance, if they've had um, treatment, surgery, things like that, that have, that have fundamentally changed the way they, they appear. Um, they can be physical symptoms that they're treatment side effects that they're um, managing. Um, and um, like lower, like fatigue, um, you know, like pain, chronic pain, things that they never had to, to cope with before that are now part of their day to day. And, um, and so the psychological changes, the physical changes, and then the existential changes that get kicked up, which is, okay, so I got the memo that life is finite. I kind of wasn't looking at that aspect of, of existence before, but now that's in my face. What kind of life do I want to be living? Who do I want to be? What do I, what, I, I understand now that, that, that um, I, you know, we, we don't have forever. Am I living authentically? And so I think a lot of times, and this is maybe particularly closer to after active treatment ends, so often people are saying, okay, now what? I got, I got this quote, wake up call, but I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to reconfigure, right? Or maybe I have some ideas about how to reconfigure, but the rest of the world didn't get the memo. So I still gotta pay the bills. I still gotta, um, you know, do have different responsibilities with my family or, or whatever those kind of other aspects of life that haven't changed. My work hours are still my work hours. And so work is still expecting the same of me. Those sorts of things can be, of course, so challenging. Um, so physical, psychological, existential, sometimes spiritual, all of those domains can be are are affected by the cancer experience. Yeah, it's it's so vital, Wendy, that you hit on all of these multiple things because that's what cancer does, right? It changes how you think, it changes how you feel, it changes the way that you see yourself, right? And that's a huge transformation because you have all of these changes happening on multiple levels and and i'm guessing that one of the things that is helpful to us right is is finding some form of acceptance of that and incorporating that into i guess kind of your new identity of, of how the way that that you see yourself but ultimately also in the way how you want to see yourself and so what's your perspective around that how do we go on in terms of moving forward with it yeah, no, as you were saying that I was thinking I was I was starting to formulate, you know, what kind of goes into that transformation or that 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 journey to finding meaning and, and purpose in perhaps new ways. And I thought, well, wait, 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 first, before any of that happens, we have to validate the pain, the grief, the suffering, the frustration. I think that's so key before I don't want to say rushing into transformation and kind of what am I going to do with this? While that's very much key to adap adaptation and adjustment, we have to acknowledge the emotional, the natural, natural emotional reactions that so often happen first. And that comes back to the first thing I was saying, which is natural to, to grieve what was lost and to give some yourself space to grieve that and to, um, and to feel frustrated um, to feel, you know, have, you know, we, these are kind of classically classic things that people come up for people, which is why me, right? To have that in before you get to the the 
oh, okay, I got, I got it figured out, whatever that means. It's all of this angst. And so if people, so often I think people hear the stories where someone landed after journeying through all their angst to some some point where they've they've integrated the experience, they are doing something perhaps meaningful um, with that experience, and th they're often vocal and visible to the to society. And so I think a lot of times people who've been through cancer see these people who have found a way and are quite vocal about their landing space. So maybe they're activists, or they're you know they're they're trying to kind of um, they talk about um, some positive sequelae of the experience. But the person who's not there yet, that's one of the most, like, that's like chalk on a, you know, like nails on a chalkboard to hear that, right? Where you're like, what? If some one more person says cancer is the best thing that ever happened to me, I'm going <laughs> to go mad, right? So because first, 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 you have to give space for the feelings that of what is so hard about this. So I, I guess, you know, before the next thing, I think that's very, very important is that people give a permission for the waves and nonlinear experiences because, you know, someone can feel like I'm doing okay. And then they hear about uh, someone appear, some appear, someone in their, their kind of age group, their developmental stage. And this happens, I think, a lot for, for those who are younger, where they, their life has not been interrupted. And they just learn that like they had some accomplishment or something with their family and their and this person who's, you know, you know, finding their way following their cancer experience, hears that and suddenly they're grieving again because they're not where this 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 friend of theirs is in life because they've been contending with cancer. So this whole experience is nonlinear. It's not like you go through this process, these stages, and then you're done. And then you never feel about it again and you're totally make sense of it and you wrap it up in a bow and it's all clean. That's, that's not how things work. We, we grieve and we regrieve as, as things that might've been otherwise, or we expected in life didn't go that way because as a result of the cancer experience, that said, what I think among the more powerful ideas that, that, we communicate a lot when working with 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 um, individuals who've gone through cancer has to do with choice. So um, fi figuring out where you have choices in what has been out of control in how you construct meaning. It's not that there is a meaning of cancer that someone is to go find necessarily. It is something that you have a choice to construct. It is free will. So we do, um, at, at, I'm, I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and um, uh, Dr. William Breitbart there has created, um, uh, developed a meaning-centered psychotherapy. And this psychotherapy, this, this intervention is um, largely based on work, um, the work of Viktor Frankl who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Um, it's not the only influence, but it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the influences of this work. And Viktor Frankl, um, in writing Man's Search for Meaning, quoted Nietzsche, who said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And this idea that when you're struggling and you're suffering, finding your whys, your why, what is important, um, which is, I think, you know, a popularized topic more and more these days, finding your why. Um, but that idea for someone who's been through cancer and figuring out 
what matters to them, what is value to them, and that they have a choice among the things that might matter to them are the choices they make in how they face their predicament, how they face their challenges from day-to-day joint pain. How do they face that to the bigger picture life disruption that maybe they experienced? That is what you have control over. And that can be a source of meaning how I faced my experience, what I chose to do before the whole circumstance, which was out of my control, that can be a source of meaning in and of itself. And I think part of what we're often doing working with individuals is helping them to recognize that while cancer was beyond their control, how they face it, the story they tell, the extent to which they decide cancer will be part of their story is up to them. That's where people have control and choice. So I think reminding oneself, reminding anyone you know who's been through this, that within the confines of the cancer experience, there is freedom. And this isn't a prescription. It's so important when we talk about this, this isn't a prescription for a positive attitude. This isn't a prescription to turn lemons into lemonade. It's nothing like that. It's just about choice. It's about you can decide what this means in your life. You could decide how you want to take your next step and what's most important to you. You can't choose cancer, but you can choose what comes next. So I think that's uh, an important part. But first, there's grief, frustration, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Wendy, and it's so powerful that you you really hit home on this idea of acknowledging and accepting and giving room to those feelings of of feeling anxious and and scared and and just panic and not knowing what's going to happen and giving yourself the opportunity to feel that way and saying you know what it's okay it's kind of natural that that I go through this before we kind of go on into how do I kind of get back to some semblance of control over my life and I think this is yeah that's that's so powerful what you're describing as you know having this choice over kind of the what I take for myself into how I see life, how I see that is been able to influence that more because so much of our experience through cancer, right? And I remember <laughs> this fondly uh, is is that feel that feeling of losing control, of not knowing like what's gonna happen of and 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 when you lose control of one thing and and the next you kind of feel like you lose control over everything in life you know it's not just cancer then you feel like well what what do i have control over right so it's kind of re-establishing that control over not only things that are to do with cancer but also with other parts of your life right a thousand percent a thousand percent and i think that um that of course the cancer experience shines a different light on all those different dimensions of life. It might change what people's priorities are. Um, it might, it might, and 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 that can really throw people for a loop as you try to figure out. Okay, there's the fact that this has been that not just my health has been threatened, but maybe you know there are financial burdens. Um, there has. Um, there are, are things with my profession that, you know, I can't, I, you know, so if you, someone has um, cognitive changes due to treatment and they can't think in the same way or with the same speed and so on, it might change their ability to do their job or if they're 
if their job was physical and they have physical pain and so on. So there are so many aspects of life that may be impacted. And for each one of these, and that can feel overwhelming, of course. So then for each one of these, you have to say, okay, what do I have control over here? What do, how do I choose to face this challenge? And how do I choose to face that challenge? And then what are my overarching priorities and what matters to me in terms of at the end of the day, what is most meaningful? Um, and how do I connect to that, right? Because we going back to that quote, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. That premise is if I have reason to put one foot in front of the other, something that matters to me, that drives me, I'll endure these treatment, these long-term treatment side effects because something else bigger than that is, you know, something sustains me. It's my, it's my life preserver are these things in life that make life worth living. So the fact that so often the cancer experience actually disconnects people from those very things that were so central and important um, is, is, is a, a huge toll that cancer takes. And so part of the, the kind of, um, adaptation, I'll keep using that word, that adapting to what has happened is figuring out where do I have control? What are the things that matter to me? And given in this situation, I actually, it won't, you know, I'm not able to do what I used to do. Well, what about that matters? Why did that, why did that role or activity or so on? What about it was key to me, was meaningful? And is there an alternative way to tap into that, a new way to tap into that? You know, I can't, um, worked with, you know, one woman um, who used to love um, bike riding in the city streets, in the streets of New York City. And she kind of would talk about, I love, you know, with the wind through my hair and kind of being a daredevil between the cars and just love the whole experience and said, I can't do that anymore. And she thought about it and reflected and was, it was a loss. It was something she grieved. It was a big part of her, her kind of day-to-day experience. But then she decided, she said, well, I, 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 I can't bike like I used to, but I can still bike. I can bike differently. And, you know, is, is it about being out there and kind of having agency over a vehicle and, and in the open air that she derived meaning from and could she grieve what was lost, but also take the parts that, that felt meaningful and important to her. So just one example of a bazillion where people find an adaptation and preserve parts of an experience, a role, an activity that matter to them and make an adjustment so that part of that can be kept or that part of their identity can be manifest in some way. A lot of adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, Wendy. And it's so true that, as you say, that really it's not about getting control over your kind of your whole life, right? Which is seems like big and scary and hard to achieve, but it's like kind of pinpointing and, and picking out those those situations and moments and, and 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 looking at this situation, going, well, how do I handle that? And looking at this one, going, well, what can I do here? Right. So it's it, it's it's doing uh, taking it one thing at a time rather than looking at it going you know, what can I do with the whole scheme of things, right? Because that's that's almost like too big to handle. Of course. Yeah, and and so I, I think that that's 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 really powerful to look at things in that way. And I think oftentimes, you know, sometimes people, uh, you know, we, you talked about you know <laughs> making lemonade out of lemons, and and we know that that's not how life works. 
Yet at the same time, we also know that you know some people they I guess they find it more they find it easier to have a more kind of positive outlook on life from just from the perspective that it makes life easier for them, right? And other people I guess are struggling more with kind of trying to get back into their life. And so, why do you think that is? And and what can we do to kind of you know, to, to make it easier for ourselves? Well, a couple of things come to mind as you say that. First, for the person who is expressing a positive attitude, a positive outlook, um, we don't know the difference between what they're expressing and what they're feeling, right? So a lot of times people are trying to demonstrate something to other people for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's to protect the people around them and um, kind of model something. And maybe that's a meaningful a meaningful role they wanna hold. Um, and I don't mean to, uh, it, you know, it, no comment on a, a good or bad, it's just important to them for some reason or another to portray this outlook. So I think we always need to kind of think about what's behind that. The other thing is you don't know how many tears were shed before they got to that point, right? You don't know how many times they were stamping their feet and, and scared and crying and then <sighs> said, you know what I think I'm gonna hold on to is this outlook and that's the one I'm gonna try on and, and publicize and share with others. Um, so that's just something I think we always need to keep in mind is what people are experiencing privately might be different than what they're expressing publicly and that when you see someone in one snapshot you don't know how hard that journey was and I think that's often you know someone in my role I'm often seeing people in those parts where they're struggling and suffering and then I might see them you know a, way down the line and they have a different a new perspective they've made meaning they've made meaning of it but that journey is not one that comes easily uh, for many people. But to your point, sometimes it does, right? There are sometimes there are people who just, they just, I probably don't see them that often because they don't show up uh, for counseling as often, but they just kind of have something that when this lands on them, that this experience happens, they grab onto um, perspectives that we would, we might, you and I might call more positive. And there are so many reasons for that. It could be that they had models of that in other people in their lives. It could be that they have gotten through past adversity and um, that perspective and holding on to that worked. Um, it could be it could be that um, they are not they. I said before, you know, cancer comes and there's a processing of a threat. Not for everybody. Some people, the meaning of cancer is just different. Or they hear, you know, their 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 medical team says everything's going to be okay, and they're like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna hang with that. I'm not going to contemplate the rest of it. I'm just going to say what you what you said. Yeah, that that I'm going to go with that." And so that the person you see who's um, expressing that positive outlook can be, you know, any one of those scenarios. The person who's struggling more with it. Likewise, it could be so many reasons. It might be how how the message of their diagnosis was communicated to them. You know, there are different ways that things are communicated, and some you know one medical provider may speak with optimism, and another one might be kind of very um, um, you know risk focused, and so it kind of might be what they're what a given individual is being told and how they're taking it. It could be life experiences for that individual, and kind of feeling like 
time and again, life doesn't give them a break. And this is just one more instance. And because life hasn't given them a break in the past and things never work out, maybe this is going to be that too. And so it kind of, that it's, it's their past experience that is, that is making it so hard to think that life is, you know, anything but going to continue to be challenging. Remember I said before, data. So if your life in terms of what has happened has been such a struggle, then it, it would make tons of sense. And that's why when I work with someone, I say, well, that's your lens. Of course, you know, this happened, um, this bad outcome happened, and then that bad outcome happened. Of course, you're, it's hard for you to have faith that the doctor's telling you it's going to be okay. Of course, because all these other things didn't go the way that people were telling you. So I get that. That makes sense. We always say what everyone's feeling always makes sense. So um, if someone's hanging out with perspectives that, again, you and I might say are, are I'm going to say more negative for the purposes of simplicity, but but you know that are that are harder to kind of take on that are um, thinking of the the worst case scenarios. Well, there's a reason for that, and we have to be compassionate to what that individual is bringing into their cancer experience as well. Yeah, exactly, Wendy. And you know, one of the things that I realize now, and this is something that I, you know, uh, I, I it's, it's it stands out for me in such a huge way, is that when you go through these dark times, when you go through these difficult moments that you you deal with, you you of course you don't know what lies ahead, and you don't have the benefit of hindsight of being in the position where you're in a different place and you've lived through it and you've found ways of coping and you've found ways to move forward in some way. And you don't see that unless you kind of, you, 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 you are forward. So I think it's, it's, always, it's always helpful to, to, to kind of to remember that things change and that it, they don't stay static, they don't stay the same and, and that wherever you're in now, that feeling might change, right? Because these feelings evolve. As you say, we find new meaning about ourselves and we go to experience life in so different ways. Another area that I really want to talk to you about, Wendy, is this, this idea when, you're, when you know, you've gone through active treatment and, and hopefully things have worked out well in that respect and, and, and cancer is something that you've kind of set aside and you're in, in a place where maybe life, uh, you know, is, is starting to change and you're starting to kind of make sense of things again. But then, of course, I think this is something that, you know, uh, pretty much most of us, or I want to say all of us, <laughs> people who've been through cancer experience is really the worry about cancer coming back. And it can be an incredibly destructive feeling, right? Because you're, it's it's something that that you kind of look looking back on, and it kind of can take over your life. So, what is what is your advice around dealing with that? Sure. Well, I I think we've hit on some of this um, to some extent because the first thing I would say would be permission giving to understand that this is natural and why that's so important is because the meaning we make of our own reactions affects what happens next. So if you think that I shouldn't think this way, or um, we talk that there's a, a great deal of work on what's called metacognitive um, metacognitions, that is the thoughts we have about the thoughts. So an example of that would be, um, um, if I if I don't think about this, if I don't keep in my mind, you know, kind of focus on the fact that it could come back, I might miss something. 
And um, so I need to keep my worry. So that's kind of a meta, like a thought about your thoughts. I, 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 my thought about my worrisome thoughts is that they're important to keep. So I'm going to keep those because someone, if I let it go, someone might miss something. I need to stay on top of this. Another example of a, a metacognition is um, if I keep worrying like this, I'm going to make myself sick. I'm going to bring on a recurrence. So this anxiety, uh, and so that, you know, of course, what happens then, the more you worry about worrying, the, you know, the more uncomfortable and distressed you are. So in, in response to that, there, um, this idea of giving yourself permission to understand that this is the way our minds work in the face of threat. So it's natural that thoughts and feelings are, are um, temporary, that they come and then our thoughts come in and dissolve out. Our feelings come up and then they pass. That's what thoughts and feelings do. The when they don't is when we give them attention. They, we, they grow. They grow when we give them attention. And one of the paradoxes, and this is you know, well-established in the literature, is that the more we try not to think about something, the more we say, don't think of a pink elephant. I'm sure you've heard of this, right? Don't think of a pink <laughs> elephant, right? So what are you thinking of? A pink elephant. So it's the same with the fear. I shouldn't think about, you know, I shouldn't think about the cancer. I shouldn't worry about it. I'm worried about this too much. Well, by virtue of having that inner dialogue, you're thinking about it. And then it's growing and growing and growing. So that's one is kind of changing the meaning of these waves of feeling and waves of thought as just that. They're natural, they're temporary, and they're manageable. You can surf them, right? We can surf waves of feeling and get to the other side. Um, again, when those thoughts come up, having that of course language, of course I thought that, of course I had that thought. I just had a pain in my back. And we all have, you are, you are taught, you know, people are taught to pay attention to certain symptoms as cancer survivors. So now you're walking a line between don't pay attention to that and pay attention to that. Well, that's a really, you know, a hard tightrope to walk, right? To kind of tune into your body, but then also don't pay in any mind. So walking that tightrope and understanding that, you know, your, 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 the, your medical team is going to be saying to you, if this continues, let us know. So how do you let it go until you get to some point where it's maybe worth mentioning to a doctor? And I think that monitoring, that bodily monitoring um, can, can be such a source of anxiety. But if you attend to it, kind of recognize it, understand if this is still here an X amount of time, then I will, I will report it, right? So, and you can, that can be worked out with communication with your medical team. At what point should I come to you if, you know, let's say there's some recurring but not chronic symptom when when should i call you and communicating with your team i think is so important and getting those guidelines um, about one specific illness and when you know it's worth calling about a headache and when it's not so that's important as well as getting getting kind of firm guidance from your medical team around those things um, again i said before being compassionate to your lens and the fact that for some people um, certain things might carry a lot more meaning so if someone lost a relative or recently learned of a friend who had cancer where some set of symptoms happened and you experience, you know, for, for um, you know, they had um, back pain and, um, and you for a morning after a rough night's sleep experience some back pain, um, it's natural that you would go there and say, what is that? 
what's going on. And so in being compassionate to that lens, understanding that's the lens you're entering with, and I will revisit this if this continues, right? Um, and I think there are going to continue to be these biases for, for individuals post-treatment in terms of ambiguous symptoms and, and ambiguous um, information out there. Um, so, you know, what does it mean that nobody called me back yet about my scan results? So in the face of ambiguity, it is natural for us to presume a worst case scenario um, because evolutionarily that was beneficial to err on the side of threat, to err on the side of worst case scenario, right? So if a saber tooth tiger was coming, it's better that you assume the saber tooth tiger is coming than not assume and then, you know, so, so that kind of mindset, we, we wanna be kind to the fact that that's, that's how we, our brains, our brains are, are wired and, um, and that compassion thing extends to coping with fear of recurrence. But then there's, what do we do with attention? How do you practice coming back to the moment? Because of course, anxiety is all future oriented. It's all uncertain, it's all about, you know, uncertainty in the future and what we don't know. But what we always have control over is the present moment. So anything that's present focused is one more, you know, tool in your toolbox in terms of, of coping with the fear. So mindfulness meditation practices can be really great for working out that muscle of returning to the moment and being compassionate to all the stuff that your mind is doing. Um, and breathing practices, guided imagery, anything that brings your attention to that body scans, anything that brings your attention to the here and now um, is, is a tool to, to an antidote, because it's present focus, it's an antidote to future-oriented thinking. So one exercise I usually uh, go over with people I'm working with is just even simply like bringing your hands together, because um, sometimes people can't hear their breath um, or it's too noisy or something like that. But we always kind of, you can always use touch um, and it can be very subtle, even if you're, you know, you're having, you're in a meeting and suddenly you start feeling something, you know, in your leg and you're like, what is that? And your mind starts going naturally, bringing back to the present, something like physical touch. What do my hands feel like? Okay, it's rough here, it's smooth here. My nail's a little jagged here. Using our five senses brings us to the here and now. So any way that we can engage our five senses, especially if you're trying to kind of focus on something, but your body is doing something else, or you're waiting for a call and someone's trying to talk to you, but your mind is elsewhere, bringing it back to the moment with something like that can be a powerful tool, grounding you back in the present. So I think those kinds of present focus exercises can be so powerful. But then the big picture one, comes back to, I think what, you know, what we've hit on a little bit already, which is about living authentically and meaningfully in a, in a, in a, in a, in a broader sense, right? So if you, everything about fear of recurrence is about a threat to one's existence, one's life, right? That we want to keep living. So one of the most powerful ways to address that is to feel like we're truly living, is to feel like we're living authentically that, and of course, caveat here is nobody lives in kind of a Zen existential elevated space 24 seven. We have to brush our teeth. We have to go to the bathroom. We have to, you know, the things that are not like, you know, is not, is not um, you know, us being philosophers and we can revisit um, with, with kind of directives to ourselves every morning with intentionality and say, what do I, what am I going to do with this day of mine? 
um, and kind of regroup when sometimes, of course, we go off course and we're doing things that don't reflect our values, don't reflect what really matters to us, and then recalibrate. Um, so I think kind of it's it's so many levels. It's at the level of the mind, the level of the body. It's it's bringing in compassion. It's living meaningfully. It's a multi-prong approach, um, but it's I think you know part of one's toolkit to cope with their fear that you want to build up. Yeah, absolutely, Wendy. And I really love how you talk about you know how a large part of it is bringing yourself back to the present moment. You know, and that's that's where the that's the place where you can access your physicality and where you can also be in a place where you are more kind to yourself where you are in the place where you can start to make um you know meaning of life again and as you say live more authentically in whatever way that means for you so i think that's really powerful and uh, so i want to say huge Thank you, Wendy, for being here, for sharing those vital perspectives. I love the exercise that you have about touch because it's such a powerful thing that you can, like, as you say, you can do anytime, anywhere that can really bring you back. And also really love the metaphor that, that you that you really, that you gave about surfing your thoughts and, and looking at your thoughts as, as waves that you, that you, that you surf. And, and part of that, I guess, is with the surfing is, that you choose what wave you're going to ride and you kind of choose which wave you're going to let go, right? Yeah, that's another powerful metaphor is just kind of is, is, is looking at it in that observing state and saying, I'm not even getting on this wave. Maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this one pass. But waves are natural. I think that's the under, the, one of the things to underscore about this is that fear is natural in the face of, of a threat and cancer presents a threat. And everyone has differing degrees of what that means. And none of us know quite how to process what one's individual risk is, right? It's, it's, so you're just, the, the psychological challenge is living with that uncertainty and it's very uncomfortable and it's natural to have waves of anxiety and waves of fear, um, but kind of that compassionate stance and keep like waves, waves are natural, fear is natural and kind of letting it pass on by, I think, um, can be, can be an empowering stance and taking control and the whole journey that can be so out of control with cancer. Awesome. Thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for what you do in the world. My pleasure. So great to talk to you. Hey, my friend, this is Joe Bakmutsky, host of the Simplify Cancer podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in because I know that this is an especially crazy time for all of us. And if you're struggling a little bit right now with the lockdown, with the COVID-19 pandemic, then I, I, I urge you to check out my 14-day lockdown challenge. How to stay sane, steady, and strong in the time of pandemic. You know, each day I'm sharing what I've really learned from cancer about dealing with isolation, with worry and fear. And each day we're going to tackle a different topic. So if that sounds interesting to you then go to 14 day that's one for 14 day lockdown challenge.com also if you're a cancer patient who's going through you know potential cancer treatment right now then i urge you to go to simplifycancer.com and check out some of the free tools that i've created to kind of help you out along the way if you go to simplifycancer.com to the tools section you're gonna find out 
the outcome map, which just shows you how to really work through specific worries, like a milestones, like, like a checkup, or maybe some specific symptoms that you've got, like an ache or a pain. You're gonna figure out what to do next. It's a really simple tool that can help you to really work through that. There's also online community guide, which is how to really find the top three online communities for most cancer. So you can really check in with people who've been through it before, like connect with them, ask questions. They're gonna be there for you because they know exactly what it's like. You know what to expect from treatment and beyond. Also, I've got a PDF called your first oncologist visit checklist. And here I've got all the questions that you will be asking your specialist. So you can just print it out and take it with you. There's room to make notes. And also make sure that you can kind of prompt the conversation and make sure that you really don't forget. The other thing I've got for you is the testicular cancer support kit. Oh, I've done a whole bunch of videos for you on the things that you can really you know, find out about dealing with testicular cancer from the perspective of someone who's been through it. This is not medical advice. This is just from my personal experience of dealing with cancer. Things that, questions that you might have about fertility, about having sex, all of that sort of stuff. Like how does it feel? Different kind of things that can help you and guide you along the way and hopefully make your journey easier. So check that out as well. And speaking of my experience, you might also want to check out <laughs> Simplify Cancer, Man's Guide to Navigating the Everyday Reality of Cancer. This is the book that I wrote talking about the four main challenges that all of us guys must overcome when we're dealing with cancer. If you're interested in seeing what that's all about, go to simplifycancer.com. The links are pretty much <laughs> everywhere on the website and you know I'll tell you more about it. Other than that, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you next time.